Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Good evening. That's just right up after worship. Amen. Stand up one more time if you would. Turn to somebody and say, tonight we're going to get something brand new from the Bible. Tell that to somebody. Make it your declaration. And I don't, can somebody take this from me? Thank you for worship. Amen. It's so good to be here tonight. Well, do you have your Bibles? Let me see your Bibles or your gadgets, your device, whatever you have. Wonderful. Open your Bible to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to pick up where we left off this morning. How many of you were here this morning? Can I see your hands? I'm so honored that you came back tonight. Thank you. And Father, we thank you for this time in the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to stand in this pulpit and to speak. I thank you for Daniel. I thank you for his ministry with Amanda in this church and that tonight he would allow me to stand in his place. What a privilege. Father, we pray for your people all over the world tonight. And Holy Spirit, tonight we look to you as the great master teacher. You are truly the one who authored this word. And you're the only one who really knows how to teach it. So tonight I look to you as the teacher and I ask you to open the word of God to us. Take us into the scriptures until we feel it, we see it, we live it, we leave this place transformed. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, are you open to 2 Timothy chapter 1? We're going to pick up right where we left off this morning, but I'm going to begin with a quick review for those that were not here this morning. When you come to the book of 2 Timothy, you find the church is under assault, and it is the first governmental persecution that has ever come against the church. There had been a lot of earlier persecutions, but they had been religious persecutions, primarily Jewish persecutions against the church. But in the year 64, Nero came to a demonic position where he burned down the city of Rome so that he could make area to build his new palace. And if anybody could be nutty, naturally, it would have been the emperor Nero because he was from quite a dysfunctional family. For example, his great-great-grandfather was Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was quite a tormented man himself. Then the empire was passed to Tiberius. Tiberius, who was one of Nero's relatives, was a man who was so twisted He didn't like the city of Rome, so he retreated to the island of Capri, which he called the Orgy Island, and he did not leave the island of Capri for 14 years, and there was a continuous orgy taking place on the Isle of Capri, primarily with homosexuality. He brought his nephew to the island. His nephew's name was Caligula. Have any of you ever heard of Caligula? And Caligula was abused by his uncle and abused by all the Roman senators who came to the Orgy Island. And finally, when Tiberius died, then the empire went to Caligula, and Caligula believed that he was God and fashioned himself after the Greek god Cronus. The Greek god Cronus had incestuous relationships with his sisters, so Caligula had incestuous relationships with his sisters to prove that he was like the god Cronus. And because the god Cronus ate his sister's twins, he ate his sister's twins when they became pregnant by him, 
This is the family that Nero is from. Then when Caligula died, it went to his uncle Claudius. Claudius was the uncle of Nero. He was the great-grandnephew of Caesar Augustus. He was poisoned by his wife, who was the mother of Nero. And when he died, Agrippina, who was the wife, quickly promoted her son into the position of emperor of the Roman Empire at the age of 16. Now, how many of you have had a 16-year-old? Imagine giving all the power in the world to a 16-year-old, telling him there was nothing he could ever do that was wrong, and empowering him to do anything that he wanted to do. Well, the first five years, Nero remarkably did a pretty good job of being the emperor, but he got tired of his mother's manipulation, so he had his mother murdered. Then he had his teachers, Seneca and Lucia, murdered. Then he began to slaughter the Roman Senate. So finally he was finished with all the restraints of people that had been laid upon him. And when he killed all of these people whom he considered to be manipulators, he was finally free to be the man that he knew he could be. And he believed he was the greatest performer in the history of of the Roman Empire and actually believed he was a fabulous singer. And even though it was not permitted for an emperor to perform on stage, Nero went on tour and began to give concerts all over the Roman Empire, and he couldn't sing. And people were so afraid to get up and walk out of his concerts for fear that they would be killed. There was actually one woman who gave birth to her baby in one of his concerts because she was too afraid to get out of her seat to go out of the theater to give birth to her baby. He believed he was the greatest architect that ever lived, and so he wanted to design a new city, tear down the city of Rome, rename it Neropolis, and in the middle of it, build himself a new palace, which he called the Golden Palace. The Roman Senate said no. He was so infuriated that he ordered his servants to set the city of Rome on fire, and the city of Rome burned for 13 days, And finally, when the fires went out, space was cleared where he could begin construction of his new palace. And the survivors of the Roman Senate said, we know who was behind this fire. It was Nero. So they summoned him to the forum for his own trial and possible execution. And en route to the forum, he conceived a diabolical idea to blame the fire on a new group in town, a religious sect called Christians. And when finally he stood in front of the Senate, he said, how could you think that I, Nero, would burn down the beloved city of Rome? I'll tell you who did this. The Senate said, tell us who. He said, this new group in town called Christians, why they've been standing on our streets, publicly preaching that one day in the future, a judgment was coming to the world that would be marked by fire. And we should have listened to them because they were giving us a secret clue that they were going to burn down the city of Rome. And that is what initiated the first official governmental persecution against the church. It was the beginning of fake news. And he brought other allegations against the church. For example, he said Christians are lawbreakers. And in a certain sense, he was right. Because according to Roman law, Christians could not meet unless they had the approval of the emperor, and the emperor would not give his approval. 
So every time they met, they were breaking the law, but they had to decide whose law they were going to obey. Obey the law of man or obey the law of God. And the Word of God commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So because they wanted to be in obedience to the Word of God, they met that every time they met, they were violating the law. So he charged them with being lawbreakers. Number two, he said in their illegal underground meetings, they're planning the subversion of the government. They're talking about another king and another kingdom. And of course, they were talking about King Jesus and the kingdom of God, that he conveyed this as though they were planning the subversion of the government and the introduction of a new king. He said, number three, in their illegal underground meetings where they're planning the subversion of the government, they are also practicing something they call love feasts. Well, a love feast is when we get together and have a meal and share the love of Jesus. But Nero, who was sexually perverted himself, in fact, he was so twisted that he married two men. When he killed his own wife because he was angry at her by kicking her in the stomach, he had such grief for killing her that he married a man and dressed the man to look like his wife and was married to that man for the rest of his life. And the reason that I'm telling you this is because for a pervert to call somebody else perverted means he must have said some really raunchy things about what these Christians were doing in their love feasts, which he said were orgies. So now he says, number one, they're lawbreakers. Number two, they're planning the subversion of the government. Number three, in their illegal underground meetings, they're practicing horrible, horrible orgies. Finally, he said, number four, Christians are cannibals. The leader of their sect, Jesus of Nazareth, said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And on the basis of that, he charged that Christians were cannibals, and he was so effective with this charge that after the death of Nero, the church fought rumors of cannibalism for 200 years. And finally, the last charge was they're standing on our streets preaching that one day a big fire will come, and surely they have set Rome on fire. And finally, when he was finished, the tables were turned, and for the very first time in the history of the church, there was an official governmental persecution against the church, which particularly hit the four largest cities of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, the city of Alexandria, the city of Antioch, and the city of Ephesus, and that is where Timothy was presiding as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And because of this persecution, which is raging against the church, people are dying for their faith. It is the first time that people are suffering officially as Christians. Timothy knows members of his church that are dying, other members of his church that are being arrested. Not only that, people that he thought would always be faithful in a moment of fire turned and walked out, abandoned him, and abandoned the Lord. And now Timothy is seized with a spirit of fear because he knows that any moment the authorities could knock on his own door, and if they arrest him, he knows what these Romans will do to him. They'll make his death especially gruesome in order to scare all the surviving Christians. And he's taken with a spirit of fear. 
So he's written a letter to Paul, and Paul is in prison in Rome. And Paul is in prison in Rome because he's been rounded up with other Christian leaders with the charge of arsony. Paul is not suffering as a Christian. He is suffering as an arson. And the news is on the streets that one of the greatest planners of the fire of Rome has been arrested and now is incarcerated in a dungeon in the city of Rome. The whole city of Rome is rejoicing that this horrible man named Paul has been captured and incarcerated. But because Paul is a Roman citizen, he has the right to receive mail. So they bring him a scroll, and here he finds he has received a letter from who? Timothy. Timothy in Ephesus who has never been charged with a crime, he has not been arrested yet, has written a letter to Paul who truly is in trouble and is in prison. And he has said to Paul, Paul, you can't begin to understand how hurt I am by what I'm going through. People have walked out on me that I thought would always be faithful. At any moment, I could be arrested. I'm dealing with fear. And he's writing to Paul who is in prison and really is in trouble, saying to Paul, you can't possibly understand what I feel. And as I said this morning, we all think that our situation is different and no one else can possibly understand what we're going through. But there's always someone who's had something worse than you, and it was Paul. And in fact, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, this thou knowest that everyone in Asia is turned away from me. That is one of the most Remarkable statements in all of Paul's epistles because 90% of Paul's ministry had been in Asia. And now that Paul is called an arson, to be associated with Paul means that you yourself could be in jeopardy. So those who knew him, those who were blessed by his ministry, have now placed distance between themselves and him to the extent that he says, everyone in Asia has rejected me. And in fact, if you go over to chapter 4, let me show you something in chapter 4. Go over to chapter 4 where Paul describes what happened to him when he was first arrested. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he says, At my first answer, the word answer is the Greek word apologia. It describes his trial. At my first trial, when I was first arrested, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. And the word forsook that is used in this verse means to forsake in a circle, which means when he came into the court for his trial to be charged, he came into the court with his friends. They were encircling him. But when he needed somebody to step forward in his defense, he turned to go around the circle, and one by one, he watched one leave and another leave and another leave and another leave and another leave until finally he found himself standing in the court by himself. All men forsook him. But the following verse says, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. The Greek says, the Lord stepped forward in my defense. Isn't it wonderful the Lord never forsakes us? But now Paul writes a letter back to Timothy, and he says, as I told you this morning, first, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear. And the word fear, the Greek word delea, it describes something that causes you to move into retreat. It is the very word which we would use to describe a coward, one that cowers, 
one who moves into a mode of self-preservation. He's no longer thinking about leading or taking new territory, but now he's backing up in retreat to protect himself. And Paul says, God has not given you a spirit of fear that causes you to retreat and to be a coward, but he's given you power and of love and of a sound mind. And then he says to Timothy in verse 8, he says, therefore, be not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And the word ashamed, as I told you this morning, is a Greek word which describes somebody so embarrassed, their face has blushed red, their ears have turned red, they're disgraced, they are embarrassed. And when you read this in the Greek text, it's a double negative, it is a prohibition, which means Timothy was already ashamed, and the Greek would be better translated, stop being ashamed, stop it now, stop being ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Timothy knows that if he's faithful to Jesus, he could lose his life, and he's tempted to put space between him and Jesus. And then Paul adds, nor of me his prisoner, which means Timothy was thinking about breaking his relationship with Paul to protect himself and not be associated with this so-called arson. And Paul says, be not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me his prisoner, But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And as we saw this morning, this verse, according to the power of God, means literally the Greek word kata, that when you suffer for the gospel, you don't suffer by yourself. Because this word kata describes something that is dominating, subjugating, or conquering, which means God joins himself to those who have taken a stand and who refuse to move so that they experience a divine measure of supernatural power when they're taking the brunt of the world around them. And then Paul continues in the next verse and says, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Verse 10, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice these words, who hath what? Abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. They're surrounded by death. So Paul's talking about abolishing death, life, immortality, coming to light through the gospel. And then in verse 11, Paul adds, whereunto, the Greek means unto this great gospel, unto this gospel, I'm appointed a preacher and a teacher and an apostle of the Gentiles for the which cause I also suffer these things. But notice in verse 11, Paul says, whereunto, it literally means unto this great glorious gospel, unto this gospel, I'm appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Verse 12, for the which cause? The Greek literally says, on account of that fact, on account of the fact that I'm appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, and this great gospel, it's because of the call on my life. I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him 
against that day. But notice he says, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. The word ashamed is the same Greek word which describes a person that feels disgraced, a person so embarrassed that their face is flushed red, their ears are burning because they're so red because of what everybody is saying about them. Well, think about it. Paul was in prison. He couldn't speak a word to defend himself, yet the entire world above him was saying his name and were rejoicing that the great arsonist had been arrested. But Paul knew who he was, and he knew who he was not. And it didn't matter what the world said about him, he was not ashamed. And I want to tell you, friends, you need to know who you are because people will run their mouths and say all kinds of things about you, and you cannot be moved by that. You need to know who you are and not be ashamed of who you are. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for I know The word I know in Greek is the word oida. I emphatically know by my past experience, I know whom I have believed and am what? Persuaded, persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And the word persuaded is the Greek word patho, The word patho can be translated persuaded, but you really need to understand this word patho. The word patho describes the process of swaying someone from one opinion to another opinion. It is a process of persuasion. It means to coax someone from one opinion until finally they have another opinion. To coax someone from a position of fear or doubt into a position of of absolute confidence. And that is the word that is used here. And Paul says, I am patho, I am persuaded. The Lord has coaxed me. The Lord has swayed me from one position to another position. Well, what position has he left and come into? Well, think about it. Paul's in prison. The whole world is talking about him. He knows that in about two months, They're going to take him out on the side of Rome where they're going to decapitate him. And just like Timothy is dealing with the spirit of fear, Paul has had to deal with the spirit of fear himself. And I'm sure as he said in that cell, he went through the same temptation that any of us would have gone through. What are people saying about me? What is going to happen to me? What's it going to feel like when the blade comes across the back of my neck? But rather than listen to all of that fear, patho, he swayed himself into a position of faith. And here we find that the word patho, translated persuaded, describes what I would call self-talk. Self-talk. He was imprisoned by himself. There was no one to speak to him. And when there's no one else to speak to you, then you have to make a decision to speak to yourself and stop listening to yourself. If you listen to your emotions, your emotions will drag you all over the place. But if you take charge and begin speaking to yourself, you can talk yourself into a position of faith. And that's what this word patho means. I told you this morning in the last two years, I didn't leave Russia for several reasons. The first reason was because of the pandemic. The second reason was because of a legal issue that I 
faced in Russia. Something that totally took me off guard and by surprise. Something that no one could have anticipated. Absolutely crazy. And when we met with our attorneys to discuss my situation, he looked across the table, held up his finger, and said, the chances of fixing your situation is zero. In 30 years, what has happened to you has never been reversed for one person in the entire nation, and it will not be reversed for you either. The best thing you could do is sue this particular organ of government Fight it for four years, but in the four years, you'll never be permitted to leave the border. And at the end of the four years, you're going to lose the battle anyway. The chances of you surviving this are zero. It felt like all of the oxygen was sucked out of the room. Denise and I were sitting side by side. Our team was there with me to hear the prognosis. No one could speak. It didn't matter how we asked the question or tried to approach it from a different angle. The answer was always the same. Zero. This cannot be fixed. Your situation is as serious as it can be. We cannot exaggerate how dire is your prognosis. Well, what do you do in a situation like that? You have to choose what you're going to believe. We walked out of the attorney's office. We got in our car to go home. It was about a three-hour drive. Denise was crying in the back seat. I was seated on the passenger side. My assistant was driving. I tried to talk to him. He looked at me and he said, I can't speak. I, I, I just can't speak. So Denise was crying. He couldn't speak. I'm seated in the front seat thinking, Okay, what do you do when you get really bad news? And I realized in that moment, it was time for me to do some self-talk. And I began rehearsing everything I've been through in my past, everything that people said I could never overcome, bills they said I could never pay, impossible situations. If you've not read our autobiography, you ought to read it. It sounds like something out of a fairy tale, but every word of it is the truth. We have walked through everything you can imagine, and we are still here, and we're doing fine. And I begin to rehearse all of those events, sitting in the front seat by myself, Came home, went to bed, got up the next morning, sat in my chair to pray. And just like you can hear my voice, I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me. And he said, trust me, I'll fix it. No one believed it could be fixed. And in fact, my situation was so dire. Denise, I'm not exaggerating, am I? I had been told to get on a plane and get out of the country as quick as possible. But if I crossed that border, I would never return. And it's my home. Our ministry base is there. Our life is there. The situation was so serious, I was told to pack my bags that day and cross the border before I was deported. But the Lord said, trust me. I'll fix it. And I called and said, I'm not leaving. What do you mean you're not leaving? I'm not leaving. 
the Lord is going to fix it. We begin to build a new studio, a new TV studio. Now think about it. This is just the way the enemy works. Here we're building a new studio, and I'm being told I'm going to be deported and I'll never return. I watched as the big cement trucks pulled up and they began to pour all the concrete and I could hear my attorney saying, this will never be fixed. You're going to be deported. And yet I'm watching them as they begin a $2 million project. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me a second time. He said, continue. Everything will be all right. And so as I sat in my chair... Every morning in our TV room where I read my Bible, and if you don't read your Bible every morning, I want to encourage you to do that. Start your day with your Bible. I have a rule, no Bible, no breakfast. And I live by that rule. And as I would sit in my chair, thoughts would begin to roll through my mind. What if? What if? What if? You know, what if questions just throw you into a state of fear? Those questions paralyze you so that you cannot function. Making matters more interesting is I was told that it would be wise for me not to leave our house for five months. So for five months... I didn't walk out the front door of our house. I'd wave at Denise as she would go to church. I'd watch people come and go. And I sat in my chair with the possibility of entertaining a lot of negative thoughts. And I had to make a choice. What am I going to listen to? So rather than listen to all the what-if questions, I decided it was time for some self-talk. Paul was in prison. He had no one to encourage him. No one was nearby. He was the only one that could speak to himself. And my friends, never forget, the Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by what? Hearing. What does the Greek say? Faith comes by Hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. The truth is, your mind will believe whatever your ears hear if you hear it enough. So I began speaking to myself, self-talk. I'm going to be fine. The Lord said he's going to fix this. The Lord told me to continue. Everything will be fine. The Lord said, trust me, I'll fix this. I repeated it to myself again and again. And again, Lord, you've never told me I'm going anywhere. Why would I think that I'm going anywhere? And I talked myself from a position of potential fear into a place of faith, rock-solid faith. Everything is going to be all right. And now Paul says to Timothy, I'm not ashamed. I know who I am doesn't matter what people say about me. And by the way, I know the Greek word oida. I've had a lot of experience with God, and there are some things that I know about God. I know him. I know whom I have believed. And 
I'm persuaded. I've talked to myself into a rock-solid position of faith. I'm persuaded that he's able to do what? Keep, keep that, which I've committed unto him against that day. And the word keep is the Greek word para tithemi. Ay, ay, ay. The word para means alongside. The word tithemi means to place or to deposit. When you put the two words together, this word commit means to pull up right alongside of something and make a deposit. Just like when I was a kid, my dad would go to the Sand Spring State Bank every other Thursday night to make the deposit of his check into the depository. And para, my dad would pull up alongside of the bank because there were no drive-through tellers back in those days. He would open that drawer, put the money in, and when he made his deposit and closed the door, it was secure in that bank. No one could touch it. Even my father could not extract the, ding, the money once it was deposited. And Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. He is able to keep that. The word that refers to himself. He's able to keep me because I have deposited myself into him. And I am permanently in him. No one can touch me in him. I can't even take me out of him. I am in him. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Wow. But why did this attack happen against the church and particularly against the Apostle Paul at that precise moment? What triggers an attack? And I want you to hold your finger there and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, to a verse that has been greatly misconstrued. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, Because of the abundance of the revelations there was given to me, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me because of all of these revelations. And when I was growing up, I was taught, as probably many of you were taught, that because the Apostle Paul had so many revelations that God felt he needed to do something to humble him so he wouldn't have an issue of pride. But God does not give us revelations to give us a pride problem. That's not what revelations produce in our life. But I was told that because Paul was prideful, God loosed the devil to attack him. But my friends, if the devil comes against you, he's not going to remove your pride. He's going to increase your pride. He's the author of pride. Everything about that interpretation is wrong. And we were taught growing up that Paul's thorn in the flesh was an eye disease, that he had weepy, weepy eyes. I was told in my church that he was a hunchback, that he was all bent over. We were also told that he had club feet. So try to imagine the great legendary apostle Paul, a hunchback with club feet and weepy, weepy eyes, and that God did this to him to keep him humble. That's what I was taught. But actually, when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, because of the abundance of revelations that have been given to me. In Greek, it describes revelations that are over the top, over the top. And because of the great place of influence that I have received, there was a sign to me 
a messenger of Satan. The word messenger, the Greek word angelos, a messenger sent on a specific mission to carry out one specific deed, and he calls it the messenger of Satan. That should already tell us where this came from. The word Satan is the Greek word satanas. It describes one who conspires against, the devil bringing all kinds of conspiracies and attacks against. Then he calls it a thorn in the flesh. The word thorn does not describe a physical disease. It is the Greek word which describes the stake on which you put someone's head after they've been decapitated, to put their head on a stake. And if you actually want to translate the verse correctly, let me give you the RIV of this verse. Listen to this. Because of the phenomenal revelations I've received... And on account of the vast number of these revelations that God has entrusted to me. And to hinder the highly visible progress I'm making. A special messenger has been sent from Satan to harass me with constant distractions and headaches. There's no doubt about it. Satan wants my head on a stake. He is constantly trying to buffet and distract me in an attempt to keep me from reaching a higher level of visibility and recognition and to sidetrack me from preaching my revelations. Paul knew it was his progress that triggered these attacks. And likewise, we need to understand that when we're making progress, the devil doesn't just sit by and twiddle his thumbs. He launches a full-scale attack to try to stop the progress that we're making. Now Paul is sitting in jail with a ridiculous charge brought against him because his visibility has become so great and because of the revelations that he is preaching. Now he is in jail, the devil wanting his head on a stake. But rather than give in to all of this, Paul begins talking to himself. Talking himself into a position of faith to make sure he stays in faith. And he tells Timothy to do the same. Look at the following verse in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words that thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus, and that good thing which was committed unto thee. Keep by the Holy Ghost that dwells in us. But notice in verse 13, he says, hold fast. It's a form of the Greek word echo. It means have, hold, possess. Make sure this is yours. What? The form of sound words. The word form, the Greek word hupotuposus. It describes a pattern of speech from which one never veers. Have, hold, and possess a specific pattern of speech. Make sure you never veer from it. And then he describes that speech as being sound words. The word sound, the Greek word hugiaino, it describes words that produce a healthy state of being. Now, why is this important? Because Timothy is seized with a spirit of fear. And he's tempted to speak a bunch of negativity. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? And Paul says, Timothy, 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 you have, you hold, you possess. Do not let go of 
the right pattern of speech. You make sure you're speaking the right kind of words. And then he describes the kind of speech he needs to keep in his mouth. He calls it sound words, words that produce the right results. And you have to remember that in James chapter 3 and verse 4, James says the tongue is a rudder. What you do with your tongue determines where you're going to go. If you speak the wrong words, you'll go to a bad place. If you keep faith words in your mouth, you will go to a right place. And now Paul says to Timothy, you keep the right words in your mouth. And then he adds, as you've heard of me. Timothy had walked with Paul. He had seen Paul in many different situations. And Paul says, you know me, you've walked with me, you hear how I speak. I always am careful with what I speak. I keep faith in my mouth. I'm sure to speak words that are going to produce the right results. And he specifically says words of faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Timothy needs to be speaking words of faith. And he needs to be speaking words of love because A lot of people have heard him. And rather than verbally rehearse everything that everybody has done to him, Paul says, Timothy, if there's ever been a moment for you to speak the right words, words of faith and words of love, it is right now. Make sure you set the rudder in your mouth in the right direction and that you produce words that produce the right results. And my friends, remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. What you speak is what you will believe. And if you speak negativity, your faith will believe it and empower it to become your reality. If you speak words of deliverance, your faith will latch hold of it and it will become your reality. What you speak determines what you're going to experience. And Paul says, Timothy, you have, you hold, you possess. Don't let go of the right kind of words. You make sure you maintain the right pattern of speech. Speak words that are going to produce the right results. Sound words. Which you've heard of me. You've heard me do it, Timothy. You've never heard me just give in to my emotions. Which you've heard of me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul adds in the following verse, Verse 14, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwells in us. When Paul says that good thing which was committed unto thee, the word committed is the same word committed which we saw in verse 12, the Greek word parathiki, which means just like we pulled up alongside of Jesus and placed ourselves permanently in him, in that moment God placed the Holy Ghost in us. He made the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us, which means when we are in a position that is difficult. We're not in it by ourselves. We are in it with the Holy Ghost. He says that good thing which is in you keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And the word keep here, the Greek word philoso, which was the Greek word used to describe a soldier who had an uninterrupted vigilance in watching over a particular piece of land that had been assigned to his care. He watched over it, and he protected it. It is the same word which was used to describe shepherds. Shepherds who had uninterrupted vigilance in watching over their sheep. 
And now he says, what has been placed in you is your assignment. God has entrusted it to you. And your job is to watch over it, to protect it, to never let loose of it, and to make sure you speak the right words about it and that you stay in faith and you stay in love. And by the way, you'll do this by the Holy Ghost that dwells in us. He dwells in us. Which means when we're faced with a challenge, we're not dealing with it by ourselves. We've got the Holy Ghost inside us. He's the power of creation. Paul was in prison. The one reason he could be so positive and faith-filled is because of the Holy Ghost. He was cooperating inside him. And now amazingly, Paul, who is in prison, is writing to Timothy, who is free, and is encouraging the free man to yield to the greater one that is on the inside of him and to make sure he lines his mouth up to speak the right words and if nobody else will encourage him, for him to encourage himself. And the reason I find this text so powerful is because we all have moments in our life when we can't find anybody to talk to us on the phone or someone to take us by the hand and yet we're in a state of panic. And in those moments, we have to make a choice just to listen to ourselves or to speak to ourselves. And if we will use our mouth right, we can talk ourselves, coax ourselves, sway ourselves into a position of faith. We can all do it. This is what was on my heart to give you tonight. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we thank you that we can do anything because of the Holy Ghost that dwells in us. We thank you for it. Tonight, I'd like you just to lay your hands on your heart. I want to pray for you as Daniel comes. Lord, we thank you for the Bible. Lord, there's nothing like it. Father, I pray for people in this room tonight that have been dealing with hardship Their emotions have been speaking to them, telling them that it's the end, that there's no way out, but there is a way out. Lord, you've given us the victory. You say this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And we choose to lay hold of the word of God, to lay hold of the victory. We know you give it to us, but tonight we choose to take it. And we ask you, Lord, tonight to Help us line the rudder of our tongue with the truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. We hope what you heard today has been encouraging and given you new insight into the Word of God. We upload weekly, so join us again next time. Be blessed and enjoy your week.